on the day-to-day basis, I just love feeding people. I really like to keep it simple. As I mature, I realize that I just want to give people food that nourishes them. That's another thing my grandma used to say was, oh, this tastes so nourishing. I can kind of hear her saying that when I make something that's kind of just right. That's Jenny Lassard, leading Métis chef and humanitarian. She's our guest today on the UK, the Métis Culture Podcast, brought to you by the Métis Nation Saskatchewan and Canadian Geographic. Welcome, Pitigwe Tanshikia. I'm Leah Marie Dorian. I'm a Métis artist and writer living near Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. And the host of Pikiuke. Pikiuke means come and visit, and on this series we invite you to join us as we go on a journey, exploring our rich Michif language and Metis culture. Tanshe. Tanshe. Pikiuke. Rubaboo. Over 10 episodes, we travel to Metis communities all over Saskatchewan, talking with Michif elders, educators, artists, and cultural leaders, and learning about what they are doing to keep the Michif language and culture vibrant and alive for future generations. Masi, enjoy! On this episode of Picky UK, we are exploring Métis cooking with Jenny Lassard. One of Canada's leading chefs, she is executive chef at the Wanuskewin Heritage Park, a national historic site celebrating First Nations culture and history in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Talking about working with traditional ingredients, Chef Jenny says, I get excited about ingredients that come from the land. Growing up in the north, blueberries were out our back door, low bush cranberries and wild mint were down by the lake, and I just thought it was great we could use all that. Chef Jenny, Welcome. Hi, Leah. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, Chef Jenny, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you grew up, and a bit about your Métis heritage? Oh, well, I was born in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and when I was two months old, my parents moved us, my my two-and-a-half-year-old sister and little baby Jenny, north to Besnard Lake. So we lived at a... My dad worked for Prince Albert Pulpwood Company, so we lived in a trailer right at the pulp camp with a couple other families, had small children too, and that was it. So there was a mess hall, trailers where the men slept, and um, three trailers with us families, and we just grew up kind of, till I was four years old, running around the shores of Besnard Lake with um, two kids, Roy and Ogie, who were from Norway, and then two um, Cree children, Melanie and James, and they spoke Cree and English, so we were kind of a little um, matey, Cree, Norwegian gang running around Besnard Lake, Saskatchewan. (laughs) Oh my goodness, what beautiful northern beginnings, Jenny. It is, yeah. And my Métis sides, my last name is Lassard, which you would think that that is French, that would be the Métis part of it. It isn't. Um, My Métis heritage comes from my mum's side, so the names on that side are Bird, Halcrow, Hallett, Knight, Campbell. So the Scottish, British side of the of the Métis, which a lot of people don't know about, they just think it's the French names, which is That's um, right. not, not knowing that a lot of those people that came through the Red River Valley were of Scottish and, and um, English ancestry too, that married Indigenous women. 
That is so true. The McKays and all the Macaulays and some of those communities, Mackenzies. Yeah. I'm so grateful for you to acknowledge our, our roots with the English Métis. Yeah, thank you. And I'm actually coming to you today from Treaty 4 territory near Lumsden. And I kind of split my time between Lumsden, Saskatchewan, where my partner lives, and Treaty 6 territory, Saskatoon. Mm-hmm. So I'll do that bit of an acknowledgement. I kind of have one foot in each territory that's for wonderful. my life. That's Jenny's story. Jenny, do you have any cooks in your family besides yourself who picked up the, the skill? Um, I learned mostly, well, from a lot of different people and a lot of different sources, but my grandma was um, a wonderful cook. And I remember we'd come to her house. She lived in Prince Albert. So we eventually moved um, further north to Larange when my sister was school age. And we settled 10 kilometers north of Larange at a little la- lake called Lamp Lake. My dad still lives there today. So we would travel to the city and we'd get to grandma's house. And first it was so exciting because you'd see the the forest give way to fields and the mm-hmm. fields would give way to what we thought was a really big city of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, population probably 30,000 then. And we'd get to grandma's house and it had sidewalks and lawn and sprinklers and all this stuff that we weren't used to seeing. We'd go into her house and it would always smell like dinner. Mm. And she had her blue and white checkered tablecloth on her table. And I realized later the reason it smelled like dinner, she would always fry up some onions or just get something going so it smelled like she had a meal ready. (laughs) Just warm the soul. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and she would serve things that, so she called what we all think of as hamburger stew or hangover stew or bullet soup, she would call that Irish stew. Okay. And I remember thinking later going, that's the stew food we grew up on that's actually Métis food but she never acknowledged it because she was married to uh, a European man and it wasn't being Métis was definitely not something that was celebrated by any means um, by my grandma or any of those older relatives other than her sister my great aunt Ruth who was the one who kind of said no we're getting to the bottom of this we're getting our family history we're not fudging things anymore and saying no that person you know, had an affair with the mailman, so we can't actually be Métis. Like, this is kind of the things that went on. So, and she would make biscuit, which, of course, was bannock. So I kind of grew up eating Métis food, but it was called by another name, which I realize now. Right. Yeah, and my other grandma, um, she was left-handed and spoke French as her first language. So she was had a very difficult time in school, and she actually left school in grade three. So she um, didn't learn to read or write until she was about 55, and she raised five kids, sorry, six kids, and most of them went on to post-secondary schooling, and she was an amazing cook, but I could never get actual recipes from her because she couldn't write them down. So I remember when, probably when I was about 22 and I had a child of my own, I would start getting these recipes, all the recipes I'd asked for over the course of my time with Grandma Taylor and she would um, finally I got these written recipes in a really shaky handwriting and that was Grandma's first written communications to me through the help of a tutor was to write out these recipes. So I think my my grandmas are my two most important foodie godmothers. Oh that's a beautiful (laughs) memory. Jenny every chef has a vision for their food. Do you have a food philosophy or vision you can share with us today? I just love feeding people. So while I do 
like to do fancy plates and that's actually how how we met Leah how we got connected true yeah I was doing a competition called Canada's Great Kitchen Party which was um, used to be called gold medal plates and they um, kind of ask five or six chefs in each kind of major Canadian city to compete in this um, program that benefits community kitchens youth in sport and music in schools and it's really kind of high stakes prestigious competition and I wanted to do a plate that represented my Métis heritage and I wanted to use plants that were um, in the sunflower family so the I don't I'm not a Michif speaker but somehow I stumbled upon the word for the sun which is lisale I'm not sure if I'm saying that Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and then just started doing some googling and of course I'd heard of, of you and seen your work and was already a fan but I saw a piece that you did with a woman kind of holding a sunflower seed I think what is that called yeah I can't remember the name of that work but we had yeah. looked at it we bantered back and forth and, and you yeah and I asked you if it. I could kind of use the you mm-hmm. know the spirit of that photo and and we did and so that was a really fancy kind of a artistic representation of food but on the day-to-day basis I just love feeding people I like to give them good clean honest food that they can recognize I like to be a little bit creative and you know what would happen if I put this with that but I really like to keep it simple I haven't always cooked like that I've sometimes had a kind of a point to prove but as I mature I realize that I just Mm -hmm. want to give people food that nourishes them that's another thing my grandma used to say was Oh, this tastes so nourishing. Oh, <laughs> love the phrase. Mm. Yeah, I can kind of hear her saying that when I make something that's kind of just right. Well, Jenny, I've, I can speak to that. I've, I've had your nourishing food, your bison meatballs cooked in the old cast iron pan that you made for me in Lumsden, Saskatchewan is still so good of a memory for me. You really did accomplish that goal. And I want you to know that. (laughs) Thank you. And I think part of it is um, being present for the people like I've, I've had a, I had a restaurant for about seven and a half years in a little town called Birch Hills. And then I did catering for another seven and a half years. That seems to be my, (laughs) my sweet spot. And I didn't like so much just making the food and dropping it off and not having a connection with people. And I think that's almost a cultural thing that the people who cook are part of the ceremonies, they're part of the feasts. And I don't think it's an ego thing that I have to be here while you eat my food so I can see how much you love it. I think it's actually just genuinely wanting to be there. And if you know, if you need to get them some more bannock, if you need to get them some water, you're there to do that. So I really resonate with like when you were over, just being able to actually sit down and eat with you like that was amazing too. And we well, I got to watch you cook like it was you a did. miracle. You sat right at the counter. I did. I wasn't going to miss a thing. Uh, Jenny, what are some of the ways you infuse Métis culture into your menu, into the the creations you make? Well, like I said, like growing up, not I didn't know I was Métis until I was probably. 24 I'm going to say like so I I think it's just cooking with your spirit mm-hmm. and what your spirit knows um and now I'm actually actively seeking out traditional Métis recipes and talking to elders and um trying to kind of work with with community to make sure I'm doing it right I guess yeah and but I think it's it is just kind of the spirit of do what you're 
DNA tells you to do. I think I mentioned to you when we were having that meal that when I had events at my restaurant in Birch Hills, we would have um, four course meals, um, a set of music, dessert, and then more music. And we'd have musicians come from all over and people would travel out. And I would ask my servers to go around and give like anything that was left. So we'd plate the food and then go around with dishes and top everybody up. And some of the servers were just aghast having worked in like quote unquote real restaurants. That's not done. You don't just go over (laughs) with a pot and say, can I give you more potatoes? I just absolutely love that. (laughs) I just, I felt like I was supposed to do that. I wanted to, this Mm -hmm. was a feast, not a, you know, a, a traditional feast, but it was a celebration. And I wanted to make sure that that food didn't just sit and congeal in pots. So after the staff was fed, I'd, I asked them to go around and top everybody up. That's what a lot of people remember about being at Newground Cafe is that this this thing happened where all of a sudden you were getting more food if you wanted it. And then when I attended my first feast out at Wanaske, when I was asked to prepare the food for that before I was officially involved with, with mm. the park, okay. I remember just thinking, like, just this settling in of my spirit going, oh, I was supposed to be doing that, giving out, you know, being hospitable and asking people if they wanted a little bit more. So I don't know if my um, leanings really fit with what a typical restaurant looks like, and I'm not sorry about that. (laughs) I don't think we have to apologize for doing it our way. I don't think so. (laughs) I think it's a wonderful way. We need to probably learn a little more about doing it that way. Jenny, you're exploring traditional Métis foods. Do you have a favorite Métis-style food that resonates with you? Oh, now I do. Um, At the beginning of COVID, I phoned one of the elders um, that's on the Elders Advisory Committee at Mm -hmm. Wanuskewin Heritage Park, where I am now the Indigenous Culinary Consultant. Um, I was the executive chef um, until a couple weeks ago, and we're transitioning me into a different role that allows me to be in all my different places and do my research and stuff like that. So anyway, I phoned up Elder Maria Linklater, Mm -hmm. and she had mentioned kind of in passing at at different events that she had a recipe for duck and oatmeal soup. And mm. I was so intrigued, but of course never had time. And then all of a sudden there's nothing but time. So I phoned Maria, got her recipe, and made this duck and oatmeal soup. And it's just savory and creamy. And if you smoked the duck, it would be smoky. And oh, it just tastes yeah. nourishing, as my grandma would and say. <laughs> oatmeal sticks to the guts. It's going to stick good. And it's so inexpensive, you know, especially mm-hmm. if someone gifts you the duck. Mm-hmm. And I didn't just get a recipe from Maria. I got um, wisdom and mm-hmm. a bit of direction and hope and encouragement. And I find that that's what happens when you speak to an elder. Sometimes you get a bit of chastising, oh, which yes. we all need sometimes. <laughs> so I, I can't really tell if my loving the duck and oat soup is because of the just the flavors or if it's also because it ties me to that memory of that wonderful conversation with Maria. Food does have stories and bonding with it. And I think that's what I love to, about your, your practice. I call you an artist, a culinary artist, because you <laughs> tell stories, you visit, you do the Métis way with your food. Do you have an object in your kitchen, Jenny? I was in your kitchen. Is there an object, a, a tool that is you want to share with our listeners that means something to you? I do. I have, I think in the 40s, there was a company called Wherever, and it was aluminum pots and they would go around to couples families and they would kind of you know say have your neighbors over and we'll do have this 
I want to say a pot party, but that doesn't sound right. But <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It was kitchenware, and it was expensive, Leah. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I might have misheard, but I think it was between two and four hundred dollars for a set. So back in the forties, like what? So my grandma bought this whole set. My grandpa must have been super duper in love because she had everything, and she even had a um, like for juicing berries and cherries and it's this kind of funnel thing that stands on a on a little stand and it has a a wooden kind of a I call it a muddler but I don't think that's what it is actually it's just to push the push the fruit down yeah so I do use it for mojitos now and then sorry nice but it's what I um, deal with my choke cherries with so I'll pick a bunch of choke cherries and then make the push the juice through using that so that is, help me do the math here, that's an old piece of equipment. It really and I is. Always, I always mm. think of her when I, when I use that. You know, for me, it's cast iron frying pans that really connect me to my Métis roots. And I still have one always on my stove. <laughs> yeah. I love them so <laughs> the much. The one that I, I use now, my dad found at the Larange dump and cleaned oh it up for me. <laughs> goodness, what a keepsake. Oh, my God. Jenny, I love yeah, you, it. I mean, who would throw away a frying pan? I mean, unless it's been used in a crime, like, why would you do that? It's, oh, to me, it's Those just, cast iron pans are oh, never beyond repair. They're never beyond repair. Agreed. Jenny, do you have any role models in or influences in your occupation, other chefs that you really emulate and bond with that you can share with us? Yeah, I, I do. Um, they're fairly recent friends, but I'm part of the board of ICANN, the Indigenous Culinary Association of Nations. And they are chefs that are kind of part of, the, of ITAC, which is the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada. And there are chefs from Quebec to Ontario to Ottawa, Vancouver, um, and recently Sheila's joined us from Nunavut. So we, um, I, I met them once at the ITAC conference in Kelowna in 2019, and then we had grand plans to cook together all over Canada. We were going to do pit cooking in the Yukon. We were going to feed 1,500 people at Rendezvous in Quebec City in May, and then everything came to a grinding halt. But we got to bond really, really quickly over like, what the heck do we do now? Our restaurants are closed and we started doing online events and there was some money allocated for us to do 100 feast boxes for our communities. But just watching how resilient these chefs are, Krista from Feast Bistro in Winnipeg, um, I mean, the day that she had to tell her staff back in March that they were closing until... You could see the heartbreak on her face, and yet she just still kept trucking. Finding ways, eh? Finding Finding ways ways. to serve. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and then when, you know, COVID kind of lifted a little bit, I traveled to Winnipeg in July and got to eat at her restaurant and just see what she's doing with her staff and her... Her cuisine, and that was, I just had the best bison short rib dish I've ever had in my life. Okay. And so that was just, yeah, they're definitely my heroes. Joseph Shawana is the president of ICANN, and he does amazing work with Centennial College, developing Indigenous recipes for the Indigenous culinary students. Um, My role models, too, are also a lot of people that are younger than me. There's two staff members at Wanuskewin, Darcy McAdam and Julie Bear, and they completed the... I'm completely... I hate the word self-trained because no one teaches themselves entirely, but I have no formal Mm -hmm. culinary training. And these two young women struggled through, persevered, and got their culinary diplomas from Sask Polytech, and I learned so much from them daily and also the, mm-hmm. their traditional cooking from their respective communities. So I think 
I really admire them, and I'm so excited to see what they're going to do with their careers. Um, also, there's a woman named Diana Bird, and she lives in Prince Albert right now. She I don't, does. Do you know Diana? That's right. I, I've met her. She had a little service that she was running there at the Historical Museum with traditional foods. Amazing. Yeah, I, I know. I Amazing. met her this summer. We were doing a an episode of Jen Sharp's Flat Out Delicious that'll air, I believe, on City TV in February. And we did a meal together down in the valley. And she, mm. you know, just like two chefs get together and she brought a trout and some fiddleheads and I brought a whole bunch of ingredients and we just put them together and made a feast, but also being cognizant of the pandemic. And we just bonded together like sisters. And I think that's when you meet a kindred spirit that also has some of your cultural background, we think we might be cousins because she's a bird and we don't know, but mm-hmm. <laughs> so she's, she works in, in the community and social work right now, but at her, in her heart, she's a chef and a person that feeds. And I think also um, ancestors. So working at Wanuskewin and going down into the valley and standing at the bison processing site, I, I sometimes I just go down there and stand with my arms kind of out and I can kind of hear and feel and see the women and all their hard work over the years. And they're my role models, even though I've never met them or physically seen them. Oh, you're so blessed to be in such a special, inspiring place, uh, you know, as part I am. of your career <laughs> journey. Really, you are. I really you am. You know, for our Métis people, we've had such a dispossession from our land. And, you know, getting access to traditional food from our homeland do you have a um do you gather traditional foods in a specific place? How do you keep connected? My main thing is i okay, this is really embarrassing growing up in the north. I've never caught a fish in my life. I've been caught by a <laughs> my when we were living at Besnard Lake one time my sister and her friends were fishing and they caught my thumb and they had to lead me back to the house with my thumb hooked with a fish oh hook, my. but I've never caught a fish. I've never been hunting, but I, I'm a gatherer. So as you know, I gather everything that I can possibly eat. So um, medicines and teas, um, medicines that I use in food. I don't have a lot of knowledge on using them as medicines, but um, Labrador tea, sage, mm-hmm. yarrow, um, all the berries, like all the berries. Um, I'll be out with a headlamp in yeah, summer I can imagine <laughs> gathering gathering the last of the berries I don't I don't pick mushrooms because I'm not totally confident in that so I buy those from Boreal Heartland in Larange it's a okay. non-timber forest product economic development agency so they actually have a, a board of elders that you know they'll say no don't pick here this is a site that needs a little bit of rest or no this is like a sacred site don't go there and then, um, so they'll call out for, you know, we need fiddleheads and then whatever community has them in the greatest uh, volume at that time, will they'll purchase from, they'll drive right up there, buy it directly from the, from the pickers. So that's when I can't, obviously I can't gather with my two hands, everything that's needed to you know, right. supply a place like Wanuskewin or even um, a large scale catering operation. But I do reach out to other people. I don't like the idea of, um. Like I do, when I harvest, I use, I give tobacco offerings. Mm-hmm. I think everyone's everyone's taught probably slightly different ways to do that. And I, then I think we adopt it in our own way too. But I think whatever way you do when you're harvesting, you don't just go in and take, 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 take. You take only what you need. 
even a little bit less than what you think you need, it's always going to be enough. When I've tried to take too much, I've always tripped and spilled my berries. So <laughs> that's a good teaching, Jenny. Thank you. <laughs> yes, so that that applies to life as well, I think. But mm-hmm. yeah, I do a lot of harvesting right around here, where like on the property that we live at Lumsden, I picked I think sixty pounds of choke cherries from the bush and. And then um, when I moved to Saskatoon from Birch Hills, where I had my restaurant, I phoned the city and said, am I allowed to harvest, you know, in the Miwasan Valley? Mm-hmm. What can I actually do? And they, I didn't really get a clear answer. So it was kind of like, do but don't. Mm-hmm. And so I just, you know, harvest very minimally what I need. And I call it exercising my Métis right to harvest along the river, like where we've been picking and harvesting for thousands of years. I'll try not to do it right beside a trail because obviously, you know, if you pick those rose petals, no one else is going to be able to see them. But I really don't see anything wrong with going in and getting what you need for yourself or your home. Um, Not your business necessarily, but um, I feel like if the animals can harvest what they need, why can't us two-leggeds? I agree. That's a beautiful teaching. But it's good to check. And if you're going on someone else's land... You need to check if you're going on traditional uh, trap, like trap lines, you probably should find out whose land that is. You, there are licenses that you need to get if you're doing larger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to go to resources and get those wild crafting permits too. Oh, that's so but, good to know for yeah. our listeners who may be interested in reconnect, especially the Métis who want to reconnect with the land and their food and do it in a small scale, personal way. Thank you for that advice. Wouldn't it be fun to go on, just have bear, like for people who've never, you know, gone choke cherry picking this summer, kind of have a U drive and kind of everybody goes out to somewhere where we're able to mm-hmm. harvest on the land and pick and pick and then have lunch together and and kind of start reconnecting that way. You know, I think you're opening a door to something. Let's put that out to the listeners, because I think that's the way we've always done it. And if we can bring that back for our young people, you know. Wouldn't that be awesome? And even, like, your artwork, it just it, it just speaks to me of women getting together and doing that very thing. Mm, gathering, and, yeah. gathering and giving thanks. Oh, I just absolutely well said. Jenny, mischief language in your menu planning, do you integrate some of our traditional language into your naming of some of your dishes and and your recipes that you're creating? I'm trying to. Um, We have a dish at Wanaskewan that we call Lisele after that kind of that inspiration of Mm -hmm. using the sunflowers. So it's a sun choke and potato gnocchi with a sage and... and sunflower Mm. pesto and then dried marigold kind of sprinkled over top. But I'm, I don't know the language, so I'm hoping to integrate more mm-hmm. into the menu planning. And I think it's something that a lot of people do not even know this language exists. So it, yep. if we put it on the menu, we also have to have a little bit of education to say, like, what is this and how did it come mm-hmm. about? Oh, I, I, agree. I think it, it I think would be great. Educate. Food education. Food education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and Jenny, you made Red River Cinnamon Buns, so kudos to you for putting Red River Cinnamon Buns on the map. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> and in It my really tummy, picked I'm... me up to hear that. I really love yeah. that. That was actually my son's idea. He was five, five and a half years old when I started my little restaurant, the first version of it. And I wanted something to reflect our Métis heritage. And he's, he said, why not Red River Cinnamon Buns? Mm. So he's kind of a little visionary himself. Not he little, should. he's 22. 
<laughs> you little <laughs> big was. visionary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I have red rose tea. Ooh, I use I make yes. a red rose tea custard because that kind of is one of my first memories is visiting friends on the trap line up at Besnard oh. Lake and mm. being allowed to drink tea even though I was just a little girl. So I think um, some of those things they're not. I don't think people would classify that as Métis food. But looking back, like who didn't have a carnation can of milk and a and a box yes. of red rose tea in the cupboard? Exactly. Chef Jenny, you know, food security has been a big problem for urban Métis right now. And how do you work to support some of the food needs of urban Métis? Have you got anything on the go or some vision around that? Well, we do. Um, I'm lucky enough to sit on a couple of boards. So I'm on the Saskatoon Food Council board who that deals with, of course, food insecurity. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also on the board of Chep Good Food. And my dear friend, she's not quite an elder, but she's very wise, Colleen Hamilton, is on that board as well. So we're able to add our voices to that. And I just joined the um, Métis Local 126 board as as vice president. So we're working to address some of that too. And then with ITAC, we're using my feast box money to deliver 100 meals to students within targeted communities, large, largely First Nation and Métis community schools. We're delivering that through the help of the Wanuskewin staff and that funding from ICANN on December 14th. And we'll be looking for more, um, as we get more funding, hopefully, for us to do that, we'll be delivering it maybe even right through Comfy, or we'll we'll have to see what happens with the COVID situation and how we're able to help. But um, I represent the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan. On, we all represent our different nations right. on ICANN. So anything that I do will go back to the Métis community in as much as I can. Oh, I'm so g- happy to hear that because urban food security, it is definitely a growing concern for a lot of us. Living it in is, and centers. I think there's a lot of work being done on kind of allowing um, country foods to be distributed, um, okay. which, you know, it's... It's not been allowed. It's so dangerous to serve rabbit and moose. I'm being sarcastic, but <laughs> yeah. we can serve overly processed cold cuts, but we can't serve foods brought directly from the land. So that there's work being done to change right. that. And Good even within you. the, yeah, I'm just put, dipping my toes in a project with the Saskatchewan Health Authorities working to bring traditional foods into the hospitals and, and long-term care home so I'm one of the consulting chefs um, just starting to get into that as well so there is work being done on that wouldn't that be cool if you could get like rabbit stew when you're in the hospital having a baby and you're from yeah you grew up on it you need it like you can digest it oh that is and yet I've worked with students in who grew up um, like Métis and First Nations youth who grew up in the city and we were able to work with them doing a wild meat kind of project and they did not like the taste of wild meat because if you didn't grow up on it so you can't assume that because someone looks a certain way or has a certain last name that they grew up eating traditional foods right everyone has a different story right like I grew up eating it because of where my parents moved but if I had stayed if we had stayed in Prince Albert I probably wouldn't have tasted 
moose or elk or deer. Exactly. So everyone has a different food story. You know, we've been doing a lot of interviews, and one of the f- popular Métis foods that keeps coming up is a rubabou stew. And mm. Have you ever made a v- version of rubabou stew, Jenny? I don't think so. Oh, we're no. going to have to cook together. Absolutely. We're going to have to cook together, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jenny will make a new version with our two minds together, everyone. Let's so be prepared. <laughs> Jenny, do you have um, any career highlights you want to share with our listeners? You know, you're now a chef. You're well-recognized for the work you do. Do you have any little highlights you can share with our listeners about your career? Mm. (laughs) Well, they probably wouldn't be highlights to anybody else, but catering at the Saskatoon Public Library was just like a dream come true. I'm such a book girl, and um, we didn't have TV growing up, so my dad would go, he would he would have to drive his scaling slips, so he was the guy that measured the piles of wood in the bush, and then he'd drive to Prince Albert with actual papers so that the guys could get paid for the wood that they scaled, that they measured, that they cut. He'd go to the library, bring back films, and we'd watch them on a reel-to-reel projector in our kitchen. And it was from the library. And then, you know, he'd bring books that we didn't have in LaRange from that library and records. And to me, the library was this golden, shiny place. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, when I moved to Saskatoon, I wanted to cater for the Saskatoon Tribal Council, Wanuskewin, and the Saskatoon Public Library. So I ended up doing a lot of catering for the writers and residents at the library. And every time I went in there through the back door, I just felt like such a rock star. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I think that's a glorious memory. But the other one was um, my foster brother, Andrew, who came to live with us when I was eight and he was two. Um, He has cerebral palsy and he's blind. He was on my first gold medal plates team and he was kind of our, the cheerleader kind of booster Mm -hmm. person. And um, that was when it was still a fundraiser for the Olympics for the, um, on the podium program. And he was our Olympic greeter. So, and he's, he just lives for the Olympics, like two weeks Every two years, you don't talk to him because he's watching the Olympics. Oh, wow. And just watching him just light up every time an Olympian would come to our table was absolutely amazing. And then having him try my my dish and my wine. Mm-hmm. And it was just, to me, like we grew up in a little cabin in the north having a pretend cooking show. <laughs> Future prediction, Jenny. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then to have us both there just, you know, living the life, that was pretty cool, too. Oh, that's a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing those two beautiful memories with our listeners. Do you have any advice for a young person wanting to enter the food industry, a young Métis person particularly? What would you say? Now is a really interesting time because restaurants are going through some major challenges, but food is always going to be needed in communities. And just be creative and don't think that because it's difficult, you can't do it. I didn't know, like Leah, I didn't know that it was supposed to be really difficult for a, a woman to be a chef because I like women cook everywhere. So I was out cooking in isolation out in Birch Hills. And, yes. You know, my first restaurant was a little hamburger stand at the LaRange Airport with a couple friends when we were going into grade nine. Like, I didn't know this was supposed to be so hard, right? And I had a lot of support from male chefs when I moved to Saskatoon, but now I hear that it and it is it's very difficult there are not a lot of female executive chefs um, women who own their own restaurants but whether you're male or female like don't if you don't know it's hard it will still be hard but you won't have that kind of oh you can't do it looming over your head so you can do it if you find a need fill it 
when I, the reason I started the restaurant in Birch Hills was I needed a job. I needed money to feed my family and I wanted a place to go that I wanted to relax and have music and mm-hmm. art and, and local food. So I created it. So I, I guess my dream is when I, I work with a lot of the, in, with the Indigenous culinary class um, with South Polytech with Chef Michael Bollet, the students come right out to Wanuskei when we forage and then we cook together. A lot of them, I would say half of each class is Indigenous. I would encourage most young people to go get training, especially Indigenous and especially visibly Indigenous women. They are like, I think it is going to be an extra struggle. And if you can say, hey, here's my papers, you want to hire someone else over me? Well, then you're going to have to have some explaining to do. But a lot of them have dreams to go back to their communities to start restaurants. And I think a cool thing that now, like post-COVID, is there some way that we can have, you know, funding put in place so people can start you know a, a taco stand that serves mm-hmm. wild meat and maybe yeah. you don't have to commit to it because a restaurant that i won't be popular to say this it's a very poor business model let's make a bunch of food that will be perishable and see if anybody comes like really that's not a great way to thrive but if you can have seasonal businesses right. or targeted businesses or maybe you know i don't want to go pull my stand downtown today i want to hang out with my kids like, I think we can find, we can make our right. own way in food and make it yeah. sustainable and exciting and don't get burned out after five years. Was that advice? I don't know. Maybe that, that was just me dreaming. That is advice uh, and it's dreams. I think this, <laughs> we're so need our young people to take the torch. And exactly. Jenny, I'm so grateful for your time today. Masi, Thank you, Leah. And, and good luck with the next uh, journey in your career. I know you're shifting roles at Wanuskewin, so all the best yeah. to you. And let's make that Rubabu stew. I'm in. I will keep okay, everyone posted. Good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Picky UK. Come and visit a Métis Nation of Saskatchewan and Canadian Geographic podcast. Picky UK is produced by David McGuffin, of Explore Podcast Productions. Our opening and closing theme music is by Métis Fiddler, Adam Daniel, and me, Leah Dorian. And if you enjoy this podcast, give us a five-star rating or write a review. Also, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and tell your friends about us on social media. I'm Leah Marie Dorian. Until next time, keep up the midden. See you later. 